Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and who love history and uh, the history of ordinary things and making things and also food. And we like to start by talking about what we have been making and or baking recently. So what have you been up to? I finished my undercurtle. Amazing. I had two full days at a online conference. So I got a lot of sewing in. That'll do it. <laughs> yeah, I've I found that to be a great activity for like when you're watching or listening to a presentation mm-hmm. and you, you wanna sort of keep engaged. So naturally I've now bought some wool for an apron dress and I'm going to add the can just because because it turns out I quite like sewing when it's not with the scary machine. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um like I'm actually sewing a skirt by hand at the moment just because kinda easy easier motivation than getting the machine out. Like yeah, like there's fewer steps to starting. Yeah, exactly. I always find that I have to be in like a very specific mood to get the machine out, and I have to. I basically spend the whole day just doing doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, incredible. So, what have you been is, up to? Is that the? Oh, uh, I was just going to ask: Is that the full outfit, or or is there more after that? Um, well, I will, I will need a belt, and if I'm going for, like, early medieval woman, I'll probably want some sort of brooch, like, maybe the proper, like, tortoiseshell brooches, uh, but I'll yeah, probably end up hunting for those at next year's Jorvik Festival, rather than trying to get them in the meantime. Or you could learn every craft. I'm working on it. <laughs> like Just... I would, I would love to tablet weave like a fabric belt, mm. but I don't know. I prefer the look of the leather ones. But I cannot justify getting into leather work until we have more space. You could set up like a casting workshop in your backyard and and just you know cast yourself some bronze brooches. You don't understand how tempted I am by these things all the time. <laughs> there is a gnome that lives in my head and tells me to do these things. <laughs> Maybe one day. Yeah. Um, I have done nothing so blatantly historical. Although I probably should, because I have an event coming up in August. But um, I did, um, I handed in my dissertation a few weeks ago, and then I experienced like an overwhelming feeling of freedom and decided that I would do lots of cooking. <laughs> And I made, uh, I, I, sometimes I just decide that I'm going to make a three-course meal, like, 
kind of off the cuff and then I regret that because it takes a long time but at that point I've committed anyway um so I may, I'll, I'll I'll describe the menu because it was a good one and um, I made some like uh tomato bruschettas nice um yeah which was good and then uh it was like a um Moroccan style kofta um with very nice uh my cucumbers are fruiting so I made like a cucumber yogurt dip thing um that was very good and uh oh this is the best part um gooseberry and elderflower frozen yogurt oh yeah that sounds really good and really summery (laughs) this was so good that i am going to um put a link to the recipe on our socials because it's a bbc good food recipe and generally they deliver the goods Mm -hmm. um this one fantastic the only thing is i didn't have i don't have an ice cream maker so i had to um take it out of the freezer every four hours and blend it (laughs) (laughs) Um, so if you don't have an ice cream maker it does require just being in that whole day but other than that it's not difficult and it is delicious so refreshing oh um yeah good good times now i have ideas for more i'm like oh what fruit could i use what syrup could i use <laughs> I, I remember having that stage when we got an ice cream maker just like <laughs> let's make all the ice cream ever yeah i really Doing, like ice cream the reduce cake sundaes and things oh, amazing um and we did a toffee apple sunday as well it was like <laughs> apple compote and caramel sauce incredible and caramel ice cream incredible <laughs> so many possibilities um but yeah that we haven't done an episode on ice cream have we we haven't we should because it's really old uh surprisingly although english heritage did just put up a very good video about the history of ice cream if Ooh. you're listening to this when you finish the episode don't do it right now finish the episode <laughs> and then go what's that <laughs> Um, yeah, so what was I going to say? I don't remember. Um, but it was delicious. I have also been working on my quilt a lot, my patchwork quilt. I have two rows now which are being sewn together, and that takes quite a long time. Um, but I are you have sewn that as well. Yes. <laughs> Um, this this one is entirely uh, paper pieced um, with the English paper piecing technique which is where you get a paper shape and you wrap your fabric around it and you tack it down and then you can sew your pieces together just using a whip stitch um, and yeah mine's getting to the point where it's starting to look like quilty and, and that feels good I took it into uni today and um, was working on it in the break uh, so it's it's having a bit of a travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's that's about it. So, what is it we are learning about today? So, Manchester recently had its big music festival, Park Life. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, I remember. 
which means there have been a lot of pictures floating around of people in festival outfits. Okay, where is this going? Got me wondering about tie-dye and resist dyeing in general. Ah, that is such a good segue. <laughs> This is this is just the way my brain works. So it's like, oh, I'm seeing a lot of that. I wonder where it comes from and everything okay. about it. I mean, that is why this <laughs> podcast exists. Yeah. So, so it's the same me. gnome, honestly. <laughs> Maybe I am the gnome. I think I think that might be it. <laughs> You are your own gnome. You can be your own gnome. How inspiring is that? Be your own gnome needs to be like our first bit of match. <laughs> so, um, tell me more. Um, so yeah, so I thought I would do kind of a whistle-stop tour around various methods of resist dyeing and then talk about how tie-dye became the, the festival outfit. Yeah. Sounds good. So we have um, extant pieces of resist dyed fabric going back to the 4th century common era. Can you just explain what you mean by resist dyeing? So resist dye is any dyeing technique where you prevent some of the dye getting to part of the fabric. The most well-known one in Britain would, and probably most places listening to this, would be tie-dyeing, because the way that you tie it means that the dye can't get to all of the fabric, and that's how you get the pattern of dyed and undyed pieces. Okay, gotcha. So um, we have them going back to when, did you say? Fourth century Egypt. Wow. Um, and but we, I wasn't able to find a lot of actual information on that. There's a lot of speculation, but we definitely have Tang Dynasty China, mm-hmm. um, and India and Japan about the same era. Um, so this is specifically wax resist dyeing, where you basically stamp or paint the fabric with some form of wax, often beeswax. Um, there's evidence of using beeswax in Indonesia okay. um, in order to create that resistance to the dyeing. Ah, so that is one of the oldest techniques then which i suppose makes sense because i've seen like i guess the wax technique that i'm most familiar with is batik which i believe originates in indonesia that that is indonesian yeah so there's actually there's a couple of different kinds of batik there's one where Mm. you paint on whatever um whatever resist or sometimes paint on the dye um like there's forms of batik where it is literally just a beautiful painted picture on the piece of fabric oh wow um but there's also stamp batik where you have a a stamp 
with wax on it that you can then use to make a repeating pattern on the fabric. Um, and then there's there's a there's a third kind as well, um, canting or janting, where mm. they use a copper pen filled with liquid wax in order to draw these incredibly elaborate patterns on the fabric. Oh, that sounds incredible. I'm going to show you a picture of it. Yes, please. Okay. That is... That is incredibly intricate. And that specific one, the canting, is believed to come from Java specifically around the 12th century. Okay. Um... Yeah, so just look up Batik Fabric. It is insanely beautiful, honestly. Yeah, they are wonderful. I'm using a couple of Batik Fabrics in my quilt, and it just, like, it always adds so much. Like, they always have the the, the most lovely, like, colour blending. And one thing that's interesting about Batik, actually, is that there's different um, motifs that you get on it, specifically in fabrics that are given to pregnant people. Okay. To kind of imbue various um, positive traits or hope for various positive traits from the child, like... um, being diligent and hardworking and honourable. Lovely. I really like it. Um, we'll get to another one that has symbolisms in a minute. Um, so yeah, there's. It also shows up in, like I say, parts of China, um, Yunnan. I know has its its own kind of resist dying. Um, yeah, uh, Dali City has a specific um, ethnic form of tie dye, which actually looks a lot like some Eastern European fabrics that I've seen. Like some of it looks very sort of woven and almost like knot work which i find really interesting yeah i see what you mean it is it does have a like a visual similarity at first glance to some of the the like floral eastern european fabrics but Mm -hmm. i don't know it's also quite unique (laughs) Um, yeah like it when you look at it properly, it's definitely different. It's just, I think it's reminiscent. Yeah. Of that kind of thing. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, oh, that is so cool. Um, so in China, we have um, Zhao Ji, I believe it's pronounced. And um, shibori in Japan, which both involve, um, so yeah. So we we also have um, shibori, which is basically the the Japanese name for resist dyeing, which has a a lot of tying methods. There's um, 
Itajima Shibori, which is you basically trap it between wood and wrap it around with string. There's ones that are much more similar to what we think of as tie-dye, which is just tying it around in certain ways without any extra things. I think I saw a video of someone doing that um, like with stitching as well. Yes, uh, stitch resist dyeing is another one which shows up in, yeah, is one of the kinds of shibori that shows up on kimono a lot. Oh, that's cool. I've been, um, yeah, I've been quite interested in that recently, but I didn't know there were so many kinds. And we also have um, the Yoruba people of Nigeria have adire, um, which literally translates to tie and die. Makes sense. Which is another kind of resist dying, which probably showed up around the um, yeah around the eighteen hundreds, so relatively recent. Um, some people think it's because there was a, this sudden influx of cotton fabric, which is a lot easier to manipulate in that way. Okay. Which makes sense if you think about places like India having tie-dye a lot earlier. Yeah, it makes sense the places that, that have more sort of dyeable resources. Yeah, like it shows up on silk fabric a lot earlier on. And obviously cotton itself grows in India and Egypt. I like that a lot of them like translate to a similar name like uh, they're all kind of you, you just tie it well I, I yeah I like that it's very self-explanatory yeah it makes it seem like quite accessible <laughs> the main ways of doing a deere resist dyeing is tying it with raffia uh, raffia being a can't talk. Raffia being a species of palm which grows in uh, the tropical areas of Africa. So that gets made into um, strands quite often. Like if you've ever seen like woven cane furniture that's often bound with raffia. Oh no I do know because um, it's often used in gardening isn't it? Um, for, for like tying stuff. Um, but Very I never knew it came from a palm. Hmm. Um, but as well as just tying it up with the raffia itself, you can tie objects to the fabric. Um, say wrapping up and tying, say, seeds or interestingly shaped stones to it to create these various patterns. And there's also um, starch resist or adire aleko where quite similar to the Indonesian technique to the batik, you can stamp or paint um, cassava flower paste to the fabric. Mm -hmm. Like you get some ridiculously complex patterns that are um, basically stenciled on. 
Like there's one that was made, um, which is in the V&A, to celebrate George V's Silver Jubilee, mm-hmm. which is start-stamped and then died with indigo, I believe. Oh, wow. Which is just incredibly complicated. And obviously, again, you can freehand paint that. Oh, wow. Have you just seen the picture of the fabric? Yeah, I love the the organic forms in that. It's beautiful. Yeah, it definitely fits, because that would be 35. And it, it definitely feels very 30s. Oh, yeah, that's almost like a bit Art Deco. Mm. Um, but the other one is Brilliant. Stitch Resist or Adire Alabare, where oh, you get these quite fine stitches, um, sometimes with raffia and sometimes with, with finer sort of sewing threads um, to make these patterns that then show up from the from the resist dyeing. Interestingly, I found one source um yeah the I say I found one source. The VNA. Um who the tend to know about these things. The VNA but, is such an amazing source for textile things. Yeah. Um but according to them Adiri is mostly made by women. Mm-hmm. But you a lot of the stitch resist cloth is made by men with sewing machines. Okay, interesting. I think there's a lot of um, sort of craft that are traditionally like done by women, except for the mechanized bit. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the history of industrialization, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Um, but interestingly, Adire seems to be coming into fashion, especially with um, African American celebrities. Okay. Quite recently, people like Michelle Obama, like she was painted in Adira fabric. Oh, I guess as as there's more of a push to have that identity and that sense of connection with Africa, which I think yeah. is really cool. Yeah, I wonder the um, some of these techniques as well, like because the way you've described it, a lot of them use natural dyes. Yeah, like Adira is generally done with indigo. Yeah, and so with um, with there being like a general expansion of interest in um, like naturally dyed fabrics and and sort of sustainable ways of making, um, whether that might contribute to popularity as well. Mm. Indigo is such a magical one. <laughs> it really is. Um, and yeah, these, um, Adire as well, like Batik, has various motifs and symbols which have, um, various meanings, so you can almost, like, read the fabric sometimes. I love a bit of symbolism. But yes, tie-dyeing itself. The, the form of resist dyeing that, like I say, I think most people certainly most people in the West would be the most familiar with. Definitely did some as a kid. I didn't actually. Like, I always wanted a tie-dye top, but I never ended up getting one. 
and now I have done some in the past year. Like yes. I've done a tie dye dress. <laughs> um, so yeah, tie dyeing itself, like I say, there's um, shows up in fifth century China and um, sixth to ninth century Peru. Oh, wow. But it wasn't particularly popular in Europe until um, it actually showed up in the 20s. That's earlier than I was thinking. So basically we get the invention of aniline or man-made dyes Mm -hmm. in the second half of the 19th century, which suddenly makes dyeing easier with a wider range of colours. And then we get an article in The Craftsman, an American arts and crafts movement newspaper, extolling the virtues of um, tie-dyed fabrics, particularly from India. Okay. And describes them as the perfectors of this technique. I mean, the fabrics that I've seen look pretty perfected. I mean, they are pretty great. And it just becomes really popular once we get around the the, the roaring 20s, because it's, it's this, you know, it's individualised, it's vivid, and there's probably an element of Orientalism there as well. Mm-hmm. But also that you can DIY. Yes, exactly. Um, But there was a professor at Columbia University, Charles Pello, who actually gave live demonstrations of tie-dyeing muslin fabric. Oh, great. Which I love in, like, 1901, (laughs) standing up in your lecture hall at this respected university and being like, this is how you tie-dye. Now, kids, I'm going to show you something absolutely radical. And actually kept its popularity in parts of the US through the Great Depression because it was an easy way to introduce this beautiful design into your home. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's also a way of refreshing kind of faded fabrics. Mm-hmm. Just re-dye it with these lovely cheap dyes. I guess you can sort of make things look fairly modern as well. Mm-hmm. Um, then it falls out of favour a little bit. And then hippies happen. Yeah. So we start to get, you know, we get LSD, we get the hippie movement, we get the general interest in more psychedelic-looking things. Mm-hmm. And... Don Price of Rich Dyes takes it upon himself to introduce this, the concept of easy resist dyeing at home with their, these new liquid dyes to uh. Greenwich Village, which was very much, it was like the, the, the Soho, it was like you know, where all of the hippie artists are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've heard of it as like a, a bohemian neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. 
and specifically pushing these liquid dyes as an easy way to get multicolor designs because you can just squeeze them onto the fabric which yeah. is actually most tie-dye kits now it's you make up a liquid dye and just squeeze it on okay so now we're in the well the realm of in, you're in your back garden with a bucket we are indeed excellent although Previous to that, you would also have been in your back garden with a bucket. It's just that it would have been a bucket that you had to dissolve the dye into, so you only really had the one colour. Oh, okay. I got it. Um, but Price had artists produce these amazing multicoloured designs to sell at Woodstock, uh-huh. at which point it basically became the hippie uniform. <laughs> I see. So we have the range from like do it yourself in your back garden to like fancy um, designer merch. Yeah, there was um, in the late 60s, there was actually a, a department store in London selling tie dyed shirts and trousers for <laughs> the, the young and fashionable. Oh, of course. <laughs> And then, of course, more recently we have, because fashion ultimately cycles, mm-hmm. looking back to that time for designs. And then we have, um, you know, in, in 2019, we have Taylor Swift in this tie-dye-esque fringed jacket cape thing. Is that the only way I know how to describe <laughs> it? I, If you're listening and you've never seen that, neither have I. So what what i'm imagining is oh okay that was a pretty good description actually it is indeed a highly highly fringed jacket thing (laughs) and it apparently it actually got a lot more popular during lockdown which i mean i definitely remember seeing a lot of videos about like bleach tie-dyeing around then Uh uh-huh oh Um, okay yeah which Basically, you do everything you would do for tie-dye, and then instead of yeah. squirting it with dye, you spray it with bleach. Yeah, it's always like the reverse, like you're removing colour to create pattern. Mm. Although, interestingly, if you do it with black fabric, you get this terracotta colour, which looks quite cool, rather than it just being paler. Ooh. So yeah, tie-dye is back on the up, which I do find kind of funny with it being back on the up during another age of avoidable austerity. <laughs> I think we've also got through the cycle where um, of the, the hippie generation being like people's mum and dad and therefore uncool. And now it's long enough ago that it's cool again. Yeah, it's it's retro rather than what my mum wore when she were a kid. <laughs> I don't know what that voice was. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think also like I feel like there's also cycles of like. Colourful clothing is cool and, and colourful clothing is tacky and we're getting back towards colourful clothing is cool. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> oh yeah, like, colourful clothing is just superior as far as it I'm is. concerned. I mean, I will wear it regardless of whether or not it's cool. Like, I, su- I support my goth brethren, <laughs> but I like colours. <laughs> That's the problem. The eternal dilemma of whether to be dark and mysterious or colourful and happy. I mean, the answer is just do both. I mean, what what is a binary if not something to be 
exited as fast as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I say as a they them. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that is my brief tour of Resist Die. I enjoyed it, and please tell me these pictures are going to be um, on the uh, the socials. I'm I'm definitely going to share the VNA one. Okay. Um, I don't know how public domain the other ones are. Okay. Well, but they'll be easy enough to find. Um, I mean, some of the ones that I sent you are just from Wikipedia. So. <laughs> but I'll, yeah, I'll either way, the Go look these up because this episode has just been a wonderful excuse to look at lots of beautiful fabrics. It's also making me want to tie-dye again and I really shouldn't because I'm buying fabric tomorrow anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You could have a look through the old clothes, see if anything needs uh, updating. Needs a little refresh. Yeah. And by a little refresh, we mean an explosion of colour. Or possibly bleach tie dyeing. I bet I've got a black t-shirt and everywhere somewhere. Yeah, that's cool. RPG ideas should be good, right? But what this podcast supposes is, maybe they don't have to be. The Probably Bad podcast brings you ideas like dire humans, fight your GM in real life, and what if there is an eye laser man? Listen to the Probably Bad podcast, available everywhere podcasts exist, and some places where they don't. So what is our local ladder? Um, well, I did know that you were going to talk about dyes. And given that we talked about um, a, lot, a lot of natural dyes in this episode, I thought it would be cool if I did a food that can also be used as a dye. Okay. Um, or at least a, a food that is made from uh, a plant that is also a dye. Um, I thought that might make a nice little tie-in, if you will. Terrible, but continue. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So I had a little look around. I had a look through my natural dye book and was like, which of these could you also eat and or drink? Uh, So it is a drink. And it's called Agua de Jamaica. And I think it I can is... guess where it's from. Uh, well, oh. actually. <laughs> okay. Um, lying names. As far as I know, it's best known as a, a typical um, drink with meals in Mexico. Sure. Although, from what I found out, it does originate in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Um or at least the um, main flavouring does. So, um, Agua Jamaica, de Jamaica, uh, is an Agua Fresca, which is a category of soft drinks um, enjoyed uh, popularly in Mexico. Um, And apparently it's very common to have it with meals. And this one is basically an iced tea made from hibiscus. Oh, I do love hibiscus. Yeah. Now, if you are in the West, you might be more familiar with drinking hibiscus as a hot tea. Yeah, um, it's the, it, the colouring agent in a lot of fruit teas as well, isn't it? To give yes. it that nice red colour. Yeah, exactly, because it is kind of a dye. Um, it, it has a very strong colour. Um, 
And so I've actually dyed with hibiscus before, and it's essentially the same. Like you make a tea with it, you steep it hot, and then you can put your thing that you want to dye in it. Um, but if you don't want to do that, you can instead uh, let it cool down, add sugar, and serve it over rice. And I'm glad then... you said add sugar because it is incredibly sour. Yes, it is quite a tart taste. <laughs> um, but like, yeah. I do like it, but I like it with other things. And then you would have uh, Agua de Jamaica. So apparently uh, the idea of Agua Frescas uh, goes back in folklore to potentially the Aztec era, which historically is actually not that long ago. Um, it's... No, it's like basically Tudor, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's um, the late Middle Ages, um, I think, um, in... Uh, in sort of European reference terms. Um, but specifically uh, the version with the hibiscus, the Agua de Jamaica, um, apparently is called that because it does originate in Jamaica and made its way across to uh, Mexico and is enjoyed in quite widely, um, apparently, around the Caribbean and Central America. Um, hibiscus is drunk in many forms um, in, in lots of places, um, but uh, the reason that uh, it was popular in Jamaica as well um, is because of uh, the African diaspora. Um, it's because hibiscus um, originates in the African continent. Um, and so there's yeah there's like a whole a whole chain so what you're saying is colonialism corner has returned yeah absolutely <laughs> it's hard to get away from it um when you're talking about history <laughs> um but in this case what we have in the present day um is like a many different forms um, that that have originated, um, and and that can uh, sort of connect back to that origin, um, and Agua de Jamaica is one of them. And apparently, it's um, traditionally made using the calyx of the hibiscus, um, which I'm going to have to do some looking up here because yeah, it's been um, a while since primary school biology. <laughs> With the parts yeah. of the flower. <laughs> I'm not a botanist. <laughs> <laughs> but um uh, yeah, okay. So that's it's not the petal, it's the the bit the cup that holds the petal. Oh okay. is, is, that, is that what a calyx is? I think that's what a calyx is. <laughs> uh botanists pr prove me wrong if I have. Not correct you, prove you wrong. Um, the, point is... <laughs> the point is, um, it has the pigment in it. 
<laughs> and and it also uh, makes the drink taste good. Um, and apparently it is enjoyed in varying sweetness. Um, apparently in Mexico they like it quite sweet, but um, other parts of the Caribbean, um, not so much, has a bit more tartness. Uh, so it depends on your preference. And uh, can have other things added to it, um, like spices in some cases. Um, but generally, the Agua de Jamaica version is is it just like a sweet tea over ice uh, that is nice to have with meals and. Honestly, as we're in summer now in the UK, that sounds really nice. Mm. And I would I would really like to give it a go. I've actually got some dried hibiscus that I got for dyeing. So Yeah, um, I, I also have some dried hibiscus that I got from yeah. the tea shop. Excellent. I don't have calyxes, I think. <laughs> but hopefully it should work. I have to assume it's gonna be close enough. Yeah. So I will report back on that. Um, but if let's both try and make a yeah, let's have a go next episode. <laughs> um, but if uh, any any listeners want to try it, uh, it looks pretty simple to make and sounds very refreshing and delicious. Should be closed <laughs> after you've after the dye anyway. Just all oh, my clothes get, get pretty crusty anyway. <laughs> bad <laughs> wash your clothes <laughs> but tie-dye them first <laughs> um so yeah thank you for listening if you want to correct hazel about flower anatomy um or suggest an episode you can email bread and thread podcast at gmail.com you can also find us on Tumblr, Bread and Thread, um, where we will have pictures and uh, reblog things. That's how that works on there. And where we're running a bracket to decide on the best bread. Oh, yeah! Throughout the entirety of July. It's the bread apocalypse. <laughs> I'm calling it the upper crust. Amazing. It starts tomorrow as, as we're recording. Yesterday, as the episode comes out. Okay, you heard it here. Go and vote, Go vote for your, your favourite friends. Um, Twitter. Yeah, we have that. We do. I have been less good at doing the Twitter lately because it's getting worse. You know. You know why. <laughs> You know, <laughs> you should probably just go find us on Tumblr. Yeah, but <laughs> like I Reddit is clear at this point. Everyone's going to Tumblr. <laughs> Who would have thought that would be the one that outlasted them all? But if you want to give us money for fabric and things, you can go to patreon.com slash bread and thread and get recipes and access to a Discord server where we just, we mostly chat about food and crafting but also just in general just kind of vibe yeah it's just the little vibe zone you can also email us on breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com if 
Did we already say that? We did. We did. Okay. Um, well, I'm right. You can also email us if you want to. You can still email us. <laughs> it has not changed in the last 20 seconds. <laughs> so thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.